Hi, I'm Patrick Palm, CEO and founder of Favro, and this is the Learn From Leaders podcast. The background to these interviews is that Favro clients are some of the most innovative and agile businesses out there. And it's used for collaborative planning by marketing teams, by product teams, HR, management teams. And what this means is that we get to know some truly inspiring people. So what we do in this podcast is that I invite them here for conversation about something where they are true leaders. So we can all learn from it. Let's go. Don, great to have you here. This is the first episode of the second season of our podcast, you know, Learning from Leaders. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm uh, delighted to be here. All right. So let's, let's get started, because uh, we have a lot of listeners to our podcast that are not in the game industry. So, I mean, the, the super short version of, you know, Don is that, you know, he's a game designer, you know, producer, uh, programmer, you know, he, he had his first hits already in the 70s, but, you know, he had, you know, hits way later than that. And, you know, you got an Emmy. So, I mean, the list can go very long, but I actually have a question because, you know, you have one of those like super crazy, you know, buyers that easily can sound megalomanic, you know, but when you go to like some kind of, you know, cocktail party or whatever with your, I mean, I know your wife too. She's, she's very nice. And, you know, you're, you're socializing, you mean someone who actually knows nothing about the game industry and is saying, you know, Hey, so what do you do? I mean, how do you normally actually present yourself in that situation? Actually, what I do, <clears throat> excuse me, what I do is I just say, oh, I'm a video game designer. And then usually because I have silver hair and obviously having been making games for 50 years, I'm not a young man anymore. And people's eyes go wide and they look at me and I go, yeah, people usually are surprised <laughs> to hear that from a guy with, with silver hair. So oh, That's awesome. Um, I remember the first time I met you um, in, in in Leipzig uh, for um, the game developer conference. So, you know, we were both speakers and we met that um, uh, like a speaker's drink the day before the conference started. Do you remember that still? Oh, I remember it very clearly because it was my first time speaking at a, a European event. And uh, frankly, I was a little nervous because, you know, I did not know people in the community well. You know, you don't want to come in and sound like you think you're the the guy who knows everything. And I was nervous, and you were so warm and friendly, uh, and you just struck up a conversation with me, and you made me feel very, very comfortable. So I I have always remembered that uh, conversation. I've always appreciated your kindness. Uh, th- thanks for saying that. It, it, it was a really good conference. I think I think that conference moved um, after that to. Was it? Um, it was some other city in Germany, but I, I I always remember that Leipzig was such a cool city, and there was these like blue pipes everywhere, mm-hmm. and I was asking people, is this some some kind of art installation or what is it? And apparently they were like pumping water out of the ground. It was it was such a it was such a cool experience, um, and I, and I remember uh, my my speech at that conference was about scaling uh, agile software development to to you know large teams and distributed teams which is funny you know this is such a long time ago and you know distributed teams today seems to be the you know what everyone's doing obviously because of covid and post covid now but um um so we were a little bit ahead of time you know there but but i, I think game developers are always 
uh, quite quite ahead of time. Um, I, you know, taking what you just said there about you know the, the the silver hair, have you ever heard the expression you know the the golden years of Hollywood? I I have. And uh, unfortunately, the golden years of Hollywood are usually described as being 60 to uh, 90 years ago. So, yeah, but, but you know, because what, what I'm wondering is that do you think that, you know, in the future, when people are going to talk about the golden years of game development, do you think that that's something that has already happened? Uh, do you think we are in it right now or do you think it's still to come? I think it's. I don't think there is such a thing as actual golden years. I think that creative media go through waves of innovation where cool new stuff is happening. New ways of doing things like Favreau are coming along. Uh, and then you have times when you're moribund, when things are just kind of standing still. And yeah. ironically, some people wish for those stable times Okay, it's the same platforms, it's the same kind of games. You can build a game, you can predict to some degree how much it will sell. It's easier to plan in times when things are not being shaken up. But game players, and in fact, software users of any kind, they get the most benefit from the times when everything is changing and innovating. So I think there are different perceptions of golden ages but I think we, I think we probably keep going brass, silver, gold, silver, brass, <laughs> silver, gold in waves. And I, I think that's just part of human nature, that that's the way things work. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've noticed is that there's a lot of people coming into, into the game development industry from other industries, such as, you know, for example, film. And often what they're saying is that, well... You know, this is still like a frontier. There's still things being discovered. There's still like so much change. You know, the rules aren't set yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I'm going into this industry. It can be everything from like film producers going into games to, to even investors, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. But let me ask you something totally different. Um, you know, if you, were, if you were 20 today, uh, would you choose to go into the game industry or would you do something different? Knowing what I know now, I know this is what I feel like I was made to do. Games are a passion for me. And working in this space, whether I'm doing my own work or working with teams that I advise, um, I still love it. And, you know, when, I, when you're 20, you have no way of knowing if you will love what you're doing 50 years later. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, uh, it turns out that for me in games... I still love it. So I think this is, this feels like what I was destined to do. Knowing that I would absolutely go into games again. If somebody said, Oh, by the way, you know, you're going to get here. Here's another 40 years and a fresh shot, shot to start from scratch. I have a good time, kid. No, yeah. I would definitely, I would, I would race to the exit to run to the games industry at that moment. Um, just because that's, that's where my passions lie. So going into then, you know, the, the you know, what are the topics of today, you know, so, you know, if, if we take the perspective of someone uh, who is going into the game industry today, you know, possibly starting at, you know, I, I guess one of the things that have truly changed uh, between, um, you know, when you created your first hit versus today is that today you can, you can really pursue a career by going to a university and study this. And, and, you know, and, and, and that wasn't around in the seventies. So, 
so if we take the perspective of a student who is at one of these, you know, great schools uh, teaching game development and are eager to, you know, get their hands dirty and start creating some stuff, um, what would you, I mean, I know you actually do this as a mentor. So, I mean, I'm, I'm making it very easy for you, but, but, you know, what would be your advice? You know, I think that, first of all, if somebody is at a, a university that is not a game specialized school, that doesn't, I would encourage them to think about games careers if that's their passion. Uh, I wouldn't say that not, not having gone to a game training program, that is not a, uh, an automatic, oh, it will never work. It changes the path is all. But I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, and that is that idea of if you want to get your hands dirty and do something. One of the big things that game schools have is they, they are doing game projects as part of your university work putting students together in groups, having deadlines, having to create something that's useful, playable within a certain period of time. And what that does is it lets people learn the realities of teamwork mm -hmm. because it's true. I think the one thing people get nostalgic for is when I started out, it was one programmer. The programmer was the designer. Very often we were also the artists. One person created a game with you know, you had feedback from people around you, but one person built that game. You know, th we're talking 1981 here. So um, that's no longer the case. And teamwork, the ability to work in teams and the ability to be able to understand all of the issues that can come up in teams because different personalities, different work styles, and the fact that different kinds of personalities uh, will come into different creative crafts. Artists are trained to think in a different way than engineers are trained to think. Mm -hmm. I was originally trained before I was captured by the games industry. I was trained as a playwright. So uh -huh. I was trained in a, another different way. And learning how to take those differences and leverage them and take advantage of them instead of uh, just, oh, no, you guys have got it all wrong. Wait, wait, uh, do it my way. That's an important learning. Wherever somebody starts out, though, I think it's important to learn a specialty because now that the industry is mature and there are lots of people looking for jobs, you want to have a skill that is hard for publishers, for game developers, for studios to find. If you have a skill that is easy to find, well, then people aren't going to be looking for you as much. And what that skill is depends on your passions, but pursuing it to the level of expertise and developing a very high level of skill at whatever your chosen field is, I think that's critical. So on that topic, have you, have you ever heard the term uh, T-shaped personalities? <laughs> I've, I've heard about T-shaped uh industries i don't think i've heard about t-shaped personalities yeah you know i actually like that term you know because it basically says that you know the thing that you just said that you need to have something where you have depth right but at the same time you also need to be a little bit more of a generalist than in the past because you you know if you're going to be a truly autonomous team um being able to like create some amazing stuff together you need to understand each other's craft. Yes. So you, you need to have that like overlap so you can really work as a team 
uh, but you need to have that speciality. It's kind of interesting, you know, I, I think, you know, that I have a little bit of a military background in the Swedish Air Force. And that's also one of the things, you know, with special ops that, uh, you know, everyone's an officer, uh, technically speaking. Um, everyone's amazing at pretty much everything, but everyone is also having something where they go deep, yeah. you know? So, so let, let's say that someone is hurt. Everyone knows that, okay, that person is the one who's going to be the, the medic right now. But if we don't have that person, everyone can be a medic. It's just that this one who's the best. And, as, and I think this, um, I'm seeing a bit of this pattern in, in game development too. You know, when, when we're starting to get more cross-functional teams and every team is almost like a little mini startup, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the key to them actually working together is that, you know, they have these like, T-shaped personalities that can actually, uh, you know, understand each other's craft. And I think even on top, first of all, I really agree with that. And I think, especially as you get more into remote teams where people are not all physically with each other, that becomes even more important, that ability to understand why somebody Mm -hmm. is doing something a certain way or why it's important. I think I would put one more thing on top of that for people who are specifically interested in the games industry. Uh, I would extend that breadth of skill also to studying things like film, mm. studying things like history, yeah. uh, studying things like cultures. If you put uh, Sid Meier, uh, Richard Garriott, Lord British, um, Bruce Shelley, all of these big award-winning uh, Will Wright, now I've, I've because of the time when I came in, I've had the privilege of, of being around these guys. And if you put them in a coffee shop with a piece of pie and a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, uh, they will talk games, but pretty quickly they may start talking about history or literature or art mm-hmm. because they have a breadth of interest yeah, and that yeah. shows up in their designs. So I think that's another part of the bottom of that T, of that inverted T. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. So, um, you know, moving from that then to, okay, so let's say that you have these things in mind and you're now entering your career. So we're going to take one specific example, which is obviously a bit close to heart for, you know, for, for, for me, which is producer or, you mm-hmm. know, development director or anything similar. Um, I see some very, let's say, typical paths to that. You know, one is starting in QA, um, and, and, you know, kind of escalating your career and you move into producer role. Uh, I also see uh, starring as more of a product manager in another industry, but really mm-hmm. want to go into game development, you're moving in there and have a couple of other similar paths too. Mm-hmm. Um, and since you have a lot of producer experience and I know you've been coaching a lot of producers, I mean, what would you say, well, to put it simply, what would be a good path? I think, I think there's two answers to that. The, the, the 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 weird answer is uh, whether you're doing a project with friends while you're in in university or whether you're doing a game jam are you are you the one who is organizing things because if you put a group of people together to do something somebody ends up being the one okay I'll take notes okay I'll make an outline out of this I'll get it to you guys mm-hmm. they may not think of themselves as being a producer but the person who does that naturally is probably going to be happier 
as a producer and choosing something you love. I, you know, I keep saying over and over, but that's critical. You're trying to chase your passions, uh, not just the, the money of a career. Yeah. And I think the other thing is if you come from any background where organizing things and being the organized person mm-hmm. is, uh, is part of what you do, do well and enjoy that suggests that if you have an angle into the games industry, uh, I think that's the path. I think it's more about what the person is like uh-huh. and less about what their prior preparation has been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's continue on this uh, this track. So let's talk about um, artists. So how would you say that the typical career path and let's say the core of the job have changed in the last you know, 10 to 15 years? For artists, you know what, what, what? Because obviously, like tooling has evolved enormously, mm-hmm. um, and but you know, talent is at the core, right? Mm-hmm. So, what's your perspective on you know what, what, what you know? What, what's the difference between you know making a good artist today versus fifteen years ago? I think first of all, there are a lot more specialties today. Uh, if you go back fifteen years, we would talk about oh, that person's a technical artist. Mm-hmm. And that would refer to to skills on maybe Maya or Max, or you know, but a limit a, a, a fairly limited number of tools could be covered by that. Or you might have your proprietary tools, where you're doing uh, specialized scripting, which is what uh, teams I've led have often done, and you'd have a technical artist doing that scripting. If you look at it now, there are many more tools. There's more kinds of things being done and there are more specialties. So there are more ways for artists to find a way to be a contributor and to be a contributor uh, uh, whose skills are not easy to find. So I think that's that's one aspect. Uh, I think the flip side is I have seen great technical artists who were good artists they were not great if you if they were doing uh, traditional art it was good but they would they were not going to they were not going to be the ones coming home with the grand prize mm-hmm. from from the paris salon but uh i think that at its heart understanding art because non-artists and as you know my mother was was a professional artist Non-artists very often think of this as a mechanical skill. You learn to take your eye and your wrist and coordinate it in such a way that you could paint or draw and do something. When in reality, art also has its own technology of how does light work? How does perspective work? Which Mm -hmm. is very complex mathematics, except artists who are traditional artists have to do it intuitively when we do 3D stuff, I can just calculate it. No problem. Yeah. I can make the perspective look right. <laughs> and I did not inherit my mother's art skills. But the um, so understanding that there is a science to art is an important thing for other teams, I think, team members to understand in terms of that. And that's something that does not change, that understanding of the scientific part of art before you ever get to the computer. Mm-hmm. gives you the art of composition that gives you something to work with as you develop a technical skill, which I think is a great thing to do for some, for someone's career. So you have a programmer background yourself. So let, let's do the same exercise with programmers. I mean, we don't have to go back to the seventies and eighties, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, if, if we, um, you know, again, you know, you know, I would argue that it's quite different 
um, today versus, uh, you know, again, 15 years ago for, uh, for a game programmer. But what would you say? Uh, I think there's no question. And I think another, there's a trend here. There's more specialization again. Um, there are more ways to specialize. In some places, we need less code. Uh, engines like Unreal and Unity have made it so a lot of things that we would normally have to code now can be done uh, simply by using the tool. And somebody who's a, a, a skilled person using the tools can avoid a lot of code writing because the engines will do it for you. Yeah. But to differentiate what you're doing in any craft, including engineering, you have to be able to go in and do something that requires you and not just the AI or the machine to do something. And so I think the, the traditional specialties that I have think of are not necessarily, I think, some of the ones that people would think about. Because I think about uh, graphics display, I think will always be a specialty because however good the engines get, if you're going to create unique views or you're going to do something special, you have to be able have engineers who can go in and go way past all the things that are done for you by any system. And they have to direct uh, interact directly with the metal on the machine to at speed, create a visual effect or do something. And so, whereas a VFX artist can do absolute magic with the tools and create looks you've never done before. That's how a VFX artist mm -hmm. would, would create, do that for an engineer. It's the ability to go low into the metal. So it's not just using high level languages. It's being able to go into the assembly and go down to the machine code level on the flip side. There are people who are gameplay engineers and gameplay engineer has become, I think a more and more important field because the gameplay engineer, there's kind of this continuum where you have a gameplay engineer at the most technical side of something. You have level designers who are now doing work that both engineers and environmental artists did at one time. You have environmental artists doing work that level designers did yeah. it sometime. And you have gameplay engineers playing with a lot of this stuff. And we have much more overlap between the skill sets and how people can get assigned. But the fact is there's a lot of different kinds of engineering and some teams have very specific things. If you look at wargaming and how they broke out with World of Tanks, mm -hmm. they had engineers who had specialties in the timing of that online experience. And uh, having done a lot of work online, uh, dealing with latency, it you know it's the big six thousand pound gorilla in the room. Yeah, and yeah. they had experts in that. So all these new specialties in engineering, I think, have grown as well. All right, cool. So if you're a talented engineer, there's a room, there's a space for you. <laughs> um, so let's turn the tables. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Let's let's talk about the employer point of view. Um, and I mean. I was about to say, you know, we're, we're both uh, multiple CEOs, but I realized, you know, you have, of course, you know, many more of those than me. So, you know, you know quite a bit about recruitment. So taking the talent landscape today and taking what we just were talking about, um, you know, I, I, I just got to the level that I realized that when, when your company is at a certain level of success, the only thing that really matters is what kind of team you put together. And, and, you know, it, it, you know, as I said, you know, I'm a third time CEO and it took me like, well, it took me three times to really learn this. And, and you, you, um, 
you know, I, I, I know, I know you have a big passion for this question and, and how would you, how would you recruit today? And if you would put yourself in the shoes, mm -hmm. because, you know, many of the favorite clients are, you know, game studios that have venture backing, you know, they're now going to like double, triple the workforce because that's what they raised money for. Right. So it's it's like the tip and and you know and and of course as much as I would like to blow the trumpet for Favro and you know having the right you know tool for coll collaborative planning and all that uh, still you know if you put you know bad people into your organization it's not going to go well so yes. you know your your ability to recruit talent is going to be more important than anything else you know for these students that just raise money you know bring a lot of people in so. Uh, you know, if you put yourself into the shoes of that leadership in that company, I mean, uh, how, how would you think today in terms of getting the right talent? And where would you find it? So I think the first thing uh, to be backwards again, the first thing to think about is how you'll retain talent. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about retaining talent, what is the culture of your studio or what is the culture of your company? And that's even more important. It's always been critical to think about what are your values? What do you stand for? What can somebody count on if they work for you? Mm -hmm. That's always been important to decide upon and then be consistent about. Well, with distributed teams, yes, we're using tools to help us, but we also have to, we still have to develop that sense of culture. And if you think of different large companies, whether it's a stereotype or the truth, we associate with, you know, you'll take company X and you'll say, oh, that's a grindhouse. They grind you into the ground because you've heard that. And you hear about another company and you hear, well, I, I, you know, people have a lot of input there. I'm always hearing about how people have, there's a lot of input people. There's a lot of listening going on and ideas come from everybody up into the company, not just from like five people or so that is the very rough edge. That's the rumor and stereotype edge of the reality of whatever you act like as a leader mm -hmm. sets the pattern for the culture of your studio. Mm -hmm. And if that's a culture people want to work in, that will then help your recruitment. So if you yeah. start by thinking, how will I make people want to work here as in keeping the people mm -hmm. we get, you're automatically making the right decisions to start recruiting because you're building a great place to work. Yeah. Once you have that, then the fact of recruiting is looking, uh, you know, if you have a small team and these people reflect not only the skills you want, but also the values, the work style. Do they show respect for others? Are they listeners as well as talkers? Do they play as a team or do they want to be the star with the spotlight on them? Mm -hmm. And they're special. Whatever those things are, if you've got the team you want, even that first core, the first three people can set a personality to a company that will still be there after 30,000 people. Yeah, uh, I was I was very very fortunate to be early at Electronic Arts, and when EA uh, hit maybe 500 people, the basic culture, all the pluses and minuses of our culture, were about the same as when there were 45 people there. So, and and from people I know who were there at the very beginning, basically it was the same for them. So we start outright reflecting what you believe in is important. I think that in 2022, 
for those of us who've been in the industry for a long time, we have to recognize that people change with generations. You don't manage the same way Mm -hmm. every 10 or 20 years going forward. And I think the most critical thing is the skill of listening and absorbing uh, and benefiting from what you hear and learn from the team, as well as sharing and telling to the yeah. team. So, so let's say that you have that in place, um, and you're now employing a headhunter to go look for mm-hmm. for the right people. I mean, where would you where, where would you send them? Would you would you simply go to other companies, or are there some 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 places where you can find talent that maybe a lot of recruiters are missing. Uh, well, being married to a recruiter has always made this easy for me because <laughs> I've I've turned the recruiter and said, "Well, where do you where do you think you would look?" And uh, but I think that the key, and I, I guess I'm having themes emerge here, is. Obviously, we're looking for skills. We're looking for people who can do things. And we can, for many skills, it can be found both within and outside the games industry. Less so, obviously, with game design itself. Um, But a lot of the skills can also be found inside. And you find passionate people outside the games industry who would like to work in games. But I think that uh, as important as looking for skills is looking for cultural fit. Mm -hmm. And looking for people who, whatever is the real culture, not the culture you wish you had. Oh yes, our culture. Well, it's kind of it's kind of like heaven in most in most religions. Everybody walks around and there's always always happy and there's there's plenty of snacks in the kitchen. Yes, it's a beautiful place. You know, a lot of people say that's the culture, and it's not. Mm-hmm. So if if your real culture is drawing certain kinds of people, they thrive there, and things are going well look at the culture and the personality, the passions and the style of those people, and then say, where would those people who will fit, as well as the people who have my, the skills, where will I find them? And that's, that's where you want to look and what you're looking for, in my view, because you're, you're not just building teams of skill, you're building teams of like-minded people mm-hmm. who agree in, in reasonably broad terms about yeah. how to go about things, go about doing things, and then they can argue productively in the areas where they disagree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a, you know, the, the last thing you said there, you know, being able to argue in a productive way, it's 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 actually quite hard mm-hmm. because I mean, let's not go political here, but you know, society today is not you know very good at that. So, yeah. um, but. You know, when you run a company, when you run a team, it's such a key skill. You know, as I said, so you you you, you know you can't have you know those kind of patterns which seems to be uh, happening in society right now, where um, because we are in the business of solving problems. You know, if you're you probably heard this expression that a company is the summer um, is the sum of all the problems solved. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, the value of a company is the sum of all those yeah. problems solved. You know, I actually like that. Um, yeah. I like that quote, and and it, it kind of goes back to that whole thing with, you know, if you're going if you're going to reach that, you know, you need you need to have a team that who's able to like actually, well, talk to each other, solve problems, even when you don't agree, move forward, get next mm-hmm. problem, and so forth. You know, and a lot of it, I think, too, is 
when people come to work, and this is something uh, that you can look at in how you build teams, some people come to work and, you know, if, if, if there's something wrong, first of all, some people start their careers and they think that every famous game company is perfect. And the fact is, if you talk, if you take whatever the most famous games in the world and have ever done, you know, World of Warcraft or Civilization or, you know, whatever it is, and you talk to people on the team, they'll say, oh, God, we made so many mistakes. Oh, this was all screwed up. It's what you do after the mistakes and how you get past things screwing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's part of building a great <laughs> game. And that is an attitude in and of itself. But I do think the a, another key part of it is you also so you have to manage you have to manage through the inevitability of problems rather than assuming you can manage to avoid all problems. But yeah. also you can't squelch different opinions. And I completely agree with you. Having people polarized and arguing about everything uh, that destroys a team. Conversely, if we if we go, oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't nice. No, you have to agree with everybody. You have to agree with me because I'm the boss. That also works very, very negatively. Yeah, so exactly. How do you encourage dissent, argumentation, and because that's conflict resolution. That's yeah. raising and solving. People who are raising problems without trying to solve are destructive to a team. Yeah, People yeah. who raise problems with the objective of solving them collaboratively with others, those people are very good for a team. Oh, I'm going to quote you on that when I do my recruiting <laughs> moving forward. You know, you know, we have this uh, principle of favor. We call it uh, a fail um, uh, failure without learning is just failure. Yeah. And winning without learning is just winning once. Yes. Uh, I, and I, I, I really uh, agree with that. Yeah. That's a very, I think that's absolutely true. Cool. So, um, you know what? My assistant, she was sending me this link before, um, you know, this interview. And she was saying, you know how many books you've wrote? And I, I have, I, always, I actually know that you've been writing uh, fiction. So, but I clicked the link and I went to Amazon. I was like, you've been writing a lot of books recently. COVID has been good for you. You know, it's interesting because I tend to write late, later at night after my wife has gone to bed, and I'll just take that last hour of the day, since I'm more of a night person, I'll take that last hour of the day, and not always, but many times I'll write. And so I, uh, I took from, what, 2008 to 2015, I wrote a novel, which turned out to be very successful. Um, and I, I always... I half joke and half speak seriously because there's lessons to be learned in this. Yeah. So the novel had no deadline. Nobody was waiting for it. I all the way through writing it, even though I was originally trained as a writer, I was afraid nobody's going to worry. Read this. this is kind of different. And I feel very lucky it worked out, but the, uh, you know, there was no deadline. So I'm just doing it late at night. The, the indie games book I wrote I wrote with a very specific deadline. I had been signed up to speak at a conference and talk about these topics. And I had the chance to have a book that was ready that would go with this. And so I, you know, I forget exactly. It was eight or nine months. I wrote the book in eight or nine months because I had a deadline and it tied, you know, I was, I didn't, because it was my work, that it was for, I did it more during the, more of it during the day, 
but I, it just shows how deadlines are critical. Having a to-do list, checking things off, whether it's agile or whatever system you use, uh, it shows why these things are important because no deadline, seven years. Uh, <laughs> deadline, eight or nine months. Both books were successful. But the difference, and I like to talk about this because it tells people, oh, deadlines are evil. That's that's what people put on us to control us. No, deadlines are what inspire us to get our act together and get things done. <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're right about that. Okay, so this has been so great. Um, and, you know, this whole um, pandemic thing is going up and down. So I don't know when the next time we see each other is, but... You got San Francisco in your background, and I hope that's that's where we meet each other. Or uh, I can't wait to get back to the U.S. and and um, you know do uh, you know one of these great conferences and and you know meet people in the flesh. I was at Slush uh, last week in Finland, uh, which was amazing because you know you're just seeing you know old friends and yeah. and you know doing it. I mean, with a slight difference that you had to do like a COVID test before going into the party, but but you know that's fine. Um, mm. So um, hopefully I'll see you soon. And, you know, thank you so much for taking this time to, to chat with me. This is great fun. And I really hope we get to see each other soon. I miss getting to sit down over a beer and have a conversation with you. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did. If you want to elevate yourself as a modern leader and help your teams become even more successful, then check out Favor Academy at favor.com. They will find podcasts, webinars, articles, all for your charge. Check it out.